Welcome, lovers of product. Today we're here with an old friend, Alok Parikh. Alok uh, is currently a founder and chief product officer at Stream. So, Alok, could you give us a little of your background? Sure. Uh, first, thanks for having me here, Eric. So, currently, as you said, uh, I'm a founder in Stream. I run um, all their product development and strategy. And my background, I started my career a while ago uh, at Oracle, where I was in their database development team for over a decade, just working on the, on the kernel itself. And then I started a company, or rather was the CTO of a company called Golden Gate, where we specialized in some additional data-related products. And then about five years ago, I took a foray into starting something from scratch, and now we are at Stream. Awesome, awesome. So you've always been a, a passionate person. Why are you passionate about product? Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard not to be passionate about product. I mean, one of the interesting things, I mean, very earlier on, and I've been sort of curious by nature as a person. And uh, every time, you know, you, you look at sort of different systems in the world or if you look at products in the world, you often find uh, people are either, you know, complaining about something or frustrated about something or, and sometimes they are thankful about some experience they've had. And my inclination was always to sort of defend, you know, why somebody built it that way. It was never sort of, to just say, yeah, I'm also frustrated by this, or, you know, I used to kind of try to be curious about, you know, what were the, some of the constraints and the boundaries of, you know, when somebody designed this, what were they thinking? Like, wasn't it obvious to them, for example, that this would not be such a good experience? And so I've just been sort of built that way right from, since I was a kid. So, um, so I don't know if that's, that's passion towards ultimately you know, taking me to down the product line. But I do think it has something to do with that. No, I, I think it is. I th and I think it's, it's difficult building products that people really love, right? It's a challenge. It is. It is, absolutely. And especially products that, you know, are sort of there to last, right? So, I mean, oftentimes there's a spectrum of, you know, different things that come and go. Um, some of them are quite ephemeral. They'll just come in and be the buzz for a short period of time. But to make real products last and potentially at scale, I, that, is a, that, is a, that is a much harder thing to do. Now, it goes back all the way to, in my view, to, uh, to systems and you know, how things evolve, not necessarily just products, but also customs or rituals. I mean, if you take a look at why things exist and the things that actually survive. Right? And so you can, at least, I've always derived a lot of inspiration from nonsensical things like sometimes you know, there'll be superstitious things about you know, hey, you shouldn't do this, or you shouldn't walk under a ladder. Or... And I've always gone back and sort of been curious about why did that evolve that way, and why did that phrase stick, right? And, and, and there is a parallel between designing and building simple, long-lasting, good products to see what emerges ultimately as sort of the equilibria or the, or, the, or the stable state of something. And I think it is a challenge to actually get something long-lasting and meaningful, and especially one that actually everybody sort of, you know, has positive feedback on. I and mean, it's not a simple thing. Yeah, yeah. And when you think about something people love, it's not just the product, but it's the whole experience around it. It's all of those interactions, all of those touch points. So you mentioned yeah. rituals, right? So sure. talk, talk to me about rituals <laughs> or superstitions and one that you learned about that had a cool background. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things, right? So for instance, when I was growing up, there was this thing about, you know, if you sneeze, your grandmother would say, don't leave the home right now. You know, bad luck is going to you know, befall you. And at that time, you're like, okay, you're a kid, you just like, kind of hang out and you don't really think much of it, right? 
But as you kind of go, you know, become a little older and you sort of, you know, you wander back. I mean, it's this, this sound advice in that, which is that, you know, in olden times, what she learned, let's say, from her grandparents, there weren't like a whole lot of doctors around. Uh, they were in remote areas. And so it was sound advice that, hey, if you fall sick, potentially, you know, after you go further from your home, you might actually die. So the application of that in the, in the, to the product part is this thing about, you know, sometimes I've often found that my own team and my engineers might rush to, you know, fixing something. They'll be like, oh, the customer has this problem, let's fix it this way. As opposed to sort of taking a step back to see, could I have prevented this in the first place? And is it something that, you know, is a real problem or is it a manufactured problem? And I think I'm drawing a parallel between these two things, but there are these parallels. And I certainly draw a lot of, you know, both in, you know, you can introspect as well as reflect on these things because if they have lasted, there's some truth to them. And that's sort of what my point was. So taking it down that road, product teams, what attributes do you look for in a product team? Well, I mean, I like people who have a lot of energy, you know, who are not afraid to come in and, you know, just raise ideas, you know, and question. I'm not afraid of that. I actually, in fact, like people like that because uh, I think those are the people that are serious about changing things. So that's definitely one trait, which is, hey, somebody who's, you know, has a lot of energy and passion about both contributing meaningfully towards change. That's, that's one. Two, you know, just uh, being very ethical, being, being disciplined and ethical. I think I look for that in people. Typically, you know, people who sort of jump around and unfocused, I find them generally... They have a use that I think that's uh, but but in a in a product at least the one that for example like stream that I it's more of an infrastructure thing it's meant to be long lasting I find that that's not the, quite the place for, for for them but people who really have like this you know this passion towards sort of you know saying hey I want to bring something to market longer term to survive to sustain I, I look for people like that who have built true products that have lasted partly like I've done that you know when I when I walk no matter which part of the world and it's great to actually walk a street and look at a, at a, at a logo, uh, be it a bank or you know, a retail shop where you've built something that these guys are using. And that's a great feeling. So I look for people who have that kind of attitude or that kind of a vision that I like it when lots of people use my services or my technology or my product or my platform. And, and obviously they have to be smart and those are the givens. What about domain expertise? I didn't hear that as one of those. Is that important or is that something that can be taught? You know, do you specifically look for that when you, when you hire? Well, I think it, it, it depends on the, on the role, right? When you're looking for people in, in certain roles, I think it's a lot more weightier than others. I think in general, if you have a very, let's say if you have just like somebody over the, over the charts, then I don't think it matters that much because I think there are people like that, very rare, though you can find people like that. So from an engineering point of view, I just look for, from a development point of view, I just look for very, very you know, smart people who have great programming skills, great coding skills, design skills. On the product management side, I do think that uh, domain expertise matters. And then again, within product management, there's, there's a, in my view, there's a range of responsibilities one may have, right? There's people who typically might be more concerned with how do you actually you know, take something to market, so which is sort of like the product marketing management aspect of things. Then there's the true inward-facing product managers, for example, where they may have to literally write specs and you know, talk to engineers. So in that area, if you truly want to contribute and not sort of be more 
at the, at the periphery of the product, I think domain expertise matters because then it helps you shape and drive the product to a deeper degree. And also, sometimes it depends on the product as well. Absolutely. And you've worked on a, a lot of technical products in your career. So that, that, that leads us to like technical skills for product managers must have, or is it really vary a lot based upon the type of product they work on? Yeah. You know, is it about the craft or? Yeah, I'd agree with that, Eric. I think it, it is, it's heavily dependent in my view on what type of product you're working on. So, for example, the type of stuff that I work on, it has to do with technology at a very, very low level. So these are things where we're really shunting around bytes between machines and across the network at high speeds, worrying about latencies, things like that. So when you are designing something like that, I think you, know, you, you cannot but be technical if you want to drive that product. If you're not technical, I, I, obviously there's a lot of value that you can have in the product team, but I would probably then you know, tend to use that kind of expertise more in, okay, let's try to talk about how do you actually, you know, on the user acquisition side or you know, go to market side, because there's people who have tons of expertise. I mean, and, and this is changing. I mean, if you take a look at how we bring products to market, right from, um, you know, SEOs, you know, how do you think about user acquisition, search terms? I mean, there's a lot of that type of expertise that potentially somebody who's deeply technical in that specific domain may completely lack. So I think you do need a combination of those two things to truly sort of bring the actual product to market in my view. So technical expertise matters to the point that if you're contributing to the product meaningfully from a design point of view, from a functional point of view, and number two, if you have a product that is actually being used by enterprises or operational teams and you want to actually not send your dev team but product managers, they have to have that amount of confidence and credibility and the technical aptitude to meaningfully bring in requirements towards reshaping and getting the next version of the, of the actual software and the product. So now you've done product management at big companies, big software companies like Oracle. You know, there's been startups, Stream being the most recent that you've been working at. Talk to me about how those might be different from a process standpoint, from an expectation standpoint, maybe you know, yeah. just from an organizational standpoint. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Very, very different experiences, in my view. In a large company, let's say at Oracle, and I actually had two separate stints at Oracle. One was the first 10 years, and then you know, they acquired my previous company, and then I, I had another three years there. They were slightly different. So let me talk about that piece first. At Oracle, what I found was that you already had hundreds of thousands of customers that by the time I got there, that they were marketing and you know, shipping their product too. And so to a large degree, the amount of innovation and the rate at which you can actually bring things, new features out, is curbed almost, right? So if you, you may have some earth-shattering, brilliant ideas, but by the time it gets to fruition, by design, there's an amount of time that, that takes for that to come because you have to worry about legacy constraints and you have to figure out backward compatibility issues and all those things that come into, into the product cycle. So a product manager there, despite them having the desire and the capability as well as the input from customers to change things, don't necessarily have that kind of an impact where they can come in and quickly steer the ship, so to speak, in a, in a new direction, or even in a impactful way. So that's at a large company. So in a way, the funnel coming into the you know, product design cycle for its next iteration, it's comprised of 
a lot of different legacy considerations. So that is very different. Now, when you're, you know, contrast that to a company like Stream, where you know we employee one, two, three, right? You have no effectively no loop coming in at this stage. This is where your vision matters. This is where your own imagination matters, and you really have to kind of take that believe in yourself to take that leap to say, no, 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 I'm going to get to the first version of this thing on my own accord. And it pushes your limits. It forces you to think a little bit further to say, you know, why would they buy this? Why would they use this? Why is this that I believe this is the first time that this thing is coming to market? And I think those are the, that's a different way of doing product management. So I think that in a startup, you really truly, and this is a cliche that you have to wear multiple hats, but there's no getting around that. You don't have the budget to just go and hire because you don't know what you're building. And oftentimes, even though maybe the fundamental driver of your idea is constant and can be sustained, the actual manifestation of that from an implementation point of view is likely, as every entrepreneur knows, you know, and you should know also, you also know this, I'm sure, it kind of changes. It changes. And so uh, it's not quite clear. You can't be as rigid Whereas there you're curbed, here you almost have to stretch yourself and be very, very flexible and be willing to change. So I think I find that to be sort of the, the contrast between a truly large enterprise versus maybe a, a startup. So what words of wisdom would you pass to product managers? Now, it might be interesting too to think about it. Like, What words of wisdom would you pass to those startup product managers and those product managers at Oracle, those new product managers <laughs> working at Oracle? And would they be the same or would they be different? Good question. I, I mean, I don't know if I've deeply thought about that, but I think the, there is commonality, in, at least instinctively. The people who go and, and are doing product management at, uh, let's say, an Oracle or an IBM or Google, when they start off, I think they, they better learn from people who have been there a while. Right? I think that is going to be, because if they try to come in and just say, hey, I'm, this, these are my ideas, I'm going to change it, they'll likely hit a wall and get disappointed very quickly. For startups, I would actually encourage them to get people from these larger companies because I think there's a discipline that these guys build of saying no. And it is important in life. It's a very common mistake is people want to do everything. I, I think that it is true that you have to be able to say, no, that's not a good idea. No, this is why we're not going to do this. And I think what happens is you hear that a lot in big companies. Not always good, but I think what happens is you, learn, you have enough of that input where you can easily take the trashy ideas and push them to the side because it, you know it will never fly with some customers. If you have no experience in, in part, your product manager, you join a startup, you want to do all these things, but you don't know. You don't know what actually it means to be adopted by more than 100 customers, right? Leave alone like 100,000 customers, right? So... I don't know if I answered your question, but I guess... No, I think you did a good job answering my question. <laughs> and then the other thing is, like I would say, is um, be in the nerve center. If you're a product manager, you don't want to be on the periphery, right? You want to be in the nerve center of a product, especially at a large company, that is truly a revenue generator for the company. You'll learn a lot. You'll be able to contribute a lot. Whereas if you're slightly, you know, some companies have thousands of products. So it depends, you know, if you're a great product manager and you really want to drive things... Yeah, be in the nerve center is, is my recommendation. So what trends do you see coming up that are, are important for product managers to be aware of? What should they be concerned about? I think two things come to mind. One, I think the nature of how software is being, products are being developed. And I'm kind of 
you know, products can spend a large uh, domain, but I'm restricting my comments at least to the technology-oriented products, software-oriented products. The way software is being built is changing very, very rapidly. The way it's all of the tooling around it, the actual process around it, the integration process, the deployment process, the rollout process, it's just in a flux right now. To a large degree, we've learned this from the likes of these mega companies like Google and Facebook and so forth, where because of the sheer nature of challenges they've had, where they've had to deal with such scale, which a lot of other companies have not dealt with before, they were forced to you know, kind of do a lot of homegrown tooling. And that's why you kind of see the whole you know, open source movement around that has resulted because, you know, they build it and now they want other smart people to kind of say, okay, well, look, we're stuck, help us. And this this has become a very interesting cycle in, in the software development process now. So I think you need to be aware of that. So that's changed from, let's say, how things were done 20 years ago where, you know, you kind of came in and, you know, you had the requirements gathering phase and you have a functional spec and you have a design spec and you kind of go towards the product. I think that's changing. You really have to be much, much more on your feet, so to speak. Agile? Agile. You know, I know, I, you know, agile is such a loaded word. You know, it's, uh, everybody uses agile, but you, you do have to be agile. Uh, you have to be flexible. So that's, that's, that's sort of one. The other is the approach to market. I think earlier, product managers were, you know, once something is built, they would actually go in and they would go through this enablement process for their teams, for their field teams and say, guys, okay, here's our value proposition. Here's how we're going to go to you know, customers. Here's how we're going to pitch our product. I think that's changed. I don't think that model fully works uh, in this day and age. So I think the product managers have to learn the new tools that are coming up in terms of some of the things I just alluded to earlier about trying to see what are the community forums where people are, developers are asking questions related to my product. And how do I actually go there and incentivize these guys to come to my website or come to my community forum or come to my support site so to start asking questions. And I think you have to be creative in a different way. I think that traditional model of sales enablement, I think that's changed dramatically. You still need it, but I think there's a lot more, what I'm seeing is a shift in how customers are purchasing products where they have pockets of people in their company who may just learn about some cool product or great technology or through word of mouth and say, hey, I want to download this and try it out. So product managers need to be aware of who's downloading that, what is their nature, why are they doing that, and then having that loop with them to reach out to at the right time to see, hey, are you at the right point? Can I help you in a certain way? before sort of the whole sales machinery kicks in. So I think they need to be aware of that and they need to sort of, you know, absorb that to be successful today. And what's a product you really love and why? It's hard not to appreciate the iPhone. It's a great product. You know, it, it unifies and integrates several different products. It op makes several products obsolete. And it truly has become indispensable. And smartphones at large, but the iPhone in particular because of the simplicity of its design, the simplicity of its interface, and the wide penetration they've been able to get. I mean, if it was, in my view, if, if it was cheaper, I think it put other phones out of business. That's my personal opinion. So I'm very impressed by that. I think that they've done a tremendous job in terms of obtaining uh, both the mindshare and being super productive, making us super productive almost in every facet of our life from no matter what age you are, no matter which culture you are in. 
So it's admirable what that product has, has done. But then I also think that uh, I would say Stream will be a product like that because uh, I'll do a, a plug-in here. Uh, you know, we're also trying to change things differently where we're trying to catch things on the wire. So the sooner you are closer to the origination of an event or data, trying to deal with it so that you don't get into that massive data deluge problem later on. And this kind of goes back to my earlier comments about the cat and the preventing something. Like one of the interesting things is, you know, we are all generating so much data today and it begs the question, where are you going to store all this data? It's just, you just can't store all this data. Our own minds don't function like that. You know, we don't store every single thing that we hear, right? We, we organize it, we compress it, we index it in our own brains. And I think it's important to take a lot of this incoming deluge and just sort of say, hey, this is uninteresting, so I'm going to actually background it. And I think that at Stream, this is what I'm excited about from a product standpoint, we are doing that, where in the future, we'll solve this massive problem of saying, hey, stuff that's uninteresting, just drop it at the edge. You don't bother showing it to me because that will become a problem as we go along over the next few years. So I think that excites me and I think that's also going to be a very you know, impactful product. Awesome. What, what gave you the inspiration for Stream? Well, it was web action then, now Stream, right? It was, it was actually a combination of two things. One, I definitely have to thank our previous customers when I was challenged with a, with a space of data replication. And in data replication, I mean, you want multiple copies of data. And as you're making the copy, you know, sometimes things happen while you're copying stuff. DNA works that way, right? I mean, aberrations happen, things change. Same thing with data. And a lot of customers would ask us, hey, you know, something is changing here. Can you tell me what's, what's changing? And it was hard in the previous product that uh, we had to sort of fully give that visibility. This is sort of the early visibility in the pipeline itself. As you, so you're copying something from point A to point B. Along the way, can I actually tell you what's going on with it? So that visibility, so it was inspired by our customers trying to ask those kinds of questions where they were saying, hey, look, something is going on. It means something to the business, but I have no visibility. So that was one. And the other was a natural evolution. I think this goes back to, you know, I love building things. And if you take a look at where I started off with from contributing to the Oracle database kernel, where you store data, then data replication, where you have it for high availability and for replication, and now you're putting intelligence into that, which is the next step of it, which is to say, hey, as data is coming in, can I sniff it for some intelligent patterns and anomalies for either fraud or for business intelligence purposes? So I think it was a combination of A, our customer feedback, and two, partly trying to innovate to just the next version of the product. So you've done a lot of cool things. What, what are you most proud of? I think if not on the, maybe the, I don't know if the question is for, from a product standpoint, but um, I think, I think really, it's open-ended. So I, I think, you know, the people I've worked with and some of the teams that I've built and things I've learned from these guys and the mentorship, maybe I would rate that the high. I don't feel like this is a job. When I work with, especially younger engineers, they come in and they have all these ideas and how you mold them and the back and forth. I, I truly love that. It, it keeps, it doesn't feel like a job. And on the product side, you know, I, I'll refer back to what I said earlier. There is no, at least in an urban city, there is no city block where if I walk 100 feet, I don't see a customer that's using a product that I've contributed to. And that makes me very proud. I like building things like that, which 
sort of are being used in everyday life. You're making an airline reservation, you're making a phone call, you're doing a banking transaction by transferring money. You know, I think those are things that I'm proud of, that I'm able to contribute to that and make a difference. So three words to describe yourself. One of my favorite questions. <laughs> I think curious is definitely one. I think I like being curious to the point of being probing. I like to know how things work, especially things I'm very interested in, more at the fundamental level. Uh, so definitely, I, I would say uh, uh, I'm a curious person by nature. Two, uh, I, I would say, you asked me for three, okay? So um, I think long-term consistency. I think if you say something, you should be able to stand by that, no matter which era you are in, or at least be able to easily either retract that and justify that or defend that, which kind of comes down to more of a ethical type of thing that I talked about in terms of who I look to hire, because what you say at one point, uh, it has to stand across time. Otherwise, it goes back to the same product thing that I mean, you can't really build meaningful products if today you say A, and then now next day you're saying the opposite of A, right? So no matter, as I go through my career, whichever product I work for, you have to be able to say that, yes, this is the best at what it does, and then be able to defend that 10 years later, right? Because you, in life, you end up talking to the same people. And so that long-lasting consistency is something else that I think that I aspire to be consistent in that fashion. About the last one, um, I'd say is uh, I'm also flexible. I think that's something that life teaches you, that as you go along, there are constraints. And not everything can be controlled by just you. So you try to change it to the degree you can, but then at the, at the end, you have to be flexible to adjust for the other variables that surround you and incorporate that and then, and then go forward. So I would say flexibility would be another one. Stylish. <laughs> Wouldn't be in the top three. <laughs> Well, thanks, look. It was great. Enjoyed this. Okay, thanks, Eric, very much for having me.